Welcome to episode three of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Greg Moran. So Greg is the co-founder and general partner at Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners, an early stage venture firm focused exclusively on the future of work and HR related technologies. Now, Fund One will allocate 20 million across seed and series A, supporting founders in commercializing technology for the workplace of the future. Prior to Evergreen, Greg founded Harvard, formerly Outmatch. He successfully acquired and integrated nearly a dozen companies across three continents to become one of the world's leading providers of hiring technology. Greg currently serves on the board of Harvard and Truvelop, an emerging leader in modern performance management. Now, if the value of Greg's writing on Twitter is anything to go off, you're in for a real treat. So, Greg, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Alex. Really appreciate you having me. <laughs> it's a real pleasure. Now, Greg, one thing I immediately recognized when we first spoke back in early March was your infectious enthusiasm and energy. <laughs> Where does this stem from and why is setting the energy of the room so important? <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Um, where does it come from? I, uh, I don't know. I get, uh, I think I get bored easily is probably the, uh, the honest answer. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have fun doing what I'm doing. Right. And, um, we, you know, I've been around founders and startups and have been lucky enough to, I think, make, make my career working with, uh, people that I love to work with, which are entrepreneurs. So, uh, so, you know, that gives me energy, right. And, and that just makes me, um, you know, it just makes me love what I do and it makes me uh, love the people I'm doing it with. And, um, and it's something I'm really passionate about. So uh, I guess that's it. But I, you know, I appreciate it. I wish there were probably a more, uh, a more sophisticated answer. But, you know, why, why, you know, how does it, why is setting the energy in the room important? Because who wants to deal with a, somebody boring, right? <laughs> I think, you know, if, if you can, um, you know, if, if what you bring to the table is, you know, is your, is your true passion for what you're, what you're talking about, I think that just makes it a whole lot easier to get things done and uh, and be somebody, you know, that uh, that people enjoy working with. And, um, you know, there's there's probably a lot of things that I could go out there and do and not have a whole lot of energy to do. I'm like um, my wife would probably say, like, mow my lawn or something like that. I, I have no energy. When it comes to those things. And I'm not I'm not enthusiastic about it. But when it comes to uh, when it comes to startups and entrepreneurs and, uh, and, you know, helping people create businesses and doing the same myself, it, uh, that, that certainly is, is the most energizing thing I could possibly be doing with my time. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. You know, you've, you've got to have fun. And the real key is having that passion, having that desire for anything you want to pursue in life, because that's really what gives it all a whole lot of meaning. Now, I do want to go back to the start. Please talk me through the beginning. So what was the course to you now co-founding Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners? So, you know, I, I've started several businesses in the past. Um, so this is this is actually Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners um, is my first foray into being strictly on the investment side um, of, uh, of the table. So I, you know, I've started multiple businesses in the past, all generally within the HR technology and work work technology space. So way back, uh, after a short stint in the music industry, which is a whole other uh, probably podcast, um, I, uh, I got into executive search. And that's really where I started my career. Um, and, you know, from there discovered really the, you know, the issues around hiring and talent management and talent selection and really just just the, the way that the way that people go about 
um, go about hiring uh, talent at all levels uh, in the way that companies do it is just absolutely it's like Stone Age compared to the rest of the way that uh, a company operates. Right. You would never you would never have so much of a, you know, so much su subjectivity and, and such a lack of data and, and real decision process um, in, say, finance. Right. Because you'd run out of money. And you would never do it in sales because you have no idea who you're selling to or why you're selling to them. And, and you know, you'd never get anything done. But in, in, in HR, in, in hiring particularly, it's, it's just the way it's been for decades and decades and decades. And, and that's the problem I wanted to solve, right? So, you know, I, I moved out of the executive search world, built some technology that we were using ourselves to, to, um, to assess candidates and decided that's where I wanted to spend my, my time. So, got into talent assessment, which is basically like personality testing and things like that. Um, built a company there and sold that and uh, spent some time consulting with companies and writing a book on, uh, on talent selection and then started what ultimately became Harvard, um, which started as a company called checked.com uh, back in 2008 and, uh, and started to build that business. And, you know, we just got, we got really lucky, um, and, you know, we, we, we really surrounded ourselves with some incredible people and and some great investors. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we're able to really build a, a pretty extraordinary business. So um, so that was it. And, you know, I'm, I'm 49 years old. Um, you know, my my ambition in exiting that business was not to go out and start a new one myself, but it was more really to help founders. And one way I could do that was through capital and investing. Um, and that's where Evergreen Mountain came from um, in the venture side. And the other way I'm really, you know, trying to do that, and this is very new for me, is, you know, is really being active on Twitter and really starting to starting to try to build out a community of founders, um, you know, where I can share my experiences and uh, and we can all learn from each other. So um, so that was really how I got into it. This is really my first my first time is like a real VC, right? And um, if you read my, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I love to make, I love nothing more than to make fun of VCs. And now I'm one of them. So um, I don't know how that, uh, how that works. No, that's a really interesting dynamic for how that, for how that all played out. So you started in executive search, then talent assessment mm -hmm. to found Harvard. I guess from this, what are your biggest takeaways from your prior companies to now operating Evergreen? Yeah, you know, I, there's there's so many right i mean i think when you you take a career of you know that that run with um with harvard was 13 years and you know over the course of that time you know i tell founders all the time like if you can just if you can just somehow get more right than wrong <laughs> in the amount you know when you're doing that you're doing great right and um you know, so I mean, there's so many, there's so many lessons I think that came out of that. I think, you know, just to just to kind of, you know, talk about a few. Um, we were growing fast, and you know, we went, we were going, you know, we went in the first few years, we were like a million, then three million, then like five million. So it was kind of, you know, still lower numbers. And then all of a sudden, we went to like ten, then twenty, then forty, then fifty, and and it was crazy. And at each of those stages, our need to hire. We're, we're always behind the curve in terms of hiring. So we ended up doing what I refer to as making a lot of desperation hires, right? Like we, we were really hiring to fill seats because we were so in need of scaling the company so fast. And that really, that hurts, right? And, and I think had we, had we hired a little bit 
you know, a little bit slower and tried to be a little bit more ahead of the curve, that would have helped. And, um, you know, I think that was one thing. I think like all, you know, like many businesses, I shouldn't say all, um, we would hang on to, to poor performers too long too, right? Where, you know, it, it's hard because when you're growing a business like that, there's such a, there's such a bunker mentality that, that develops, right? There's, there's this camaraderie among the people who are in the fight every day together, trying to build something and create something. Um, but then there comes a time, a time when you outgrow a lot of those people. And, and it's, it's brutal on a founder. It's brutal on a, on a leader where you have to make those hard decisions to, you know, let somebody go that is now, you know, maybe was a great performer and is now really struggling. And, um, but, you know, I think one of the lessons learned there was you got to you, you just you got to stop making excuses for people. Right. You, you've got to it, it does no one, including the person, justice when you keep somebody um, in a, you know, in a role that long. And I think, you know, the other the other thing is, you know, we had a tendency to focus on growth um, at all costs. Right. And if I had it to do over, I probably would have focused a little bit more on particularly early days on profitable growth. Um you know, maybe slowed the growth rate down a little bit, but, uh, but did it profitably, it probably would have kept, uh, some more equity in the business and, um, and, uh, and, and kept things at a little bit more manageable pace, let's say, than, uh, the, than maybe they got to. But I mean, those are the ones that really stand out to me, but there, you know, there are, man, you just learn lessons every day when you're growing like that. And, um, you know, some of them are, some of them are more painful than others for sure. Yeah. I think that's very, very true. And you, you mentioned holding on to poor performance and also hiring too quickly. There's absolutely a balance that must be must be struck there, right, with acquiring talent, but acquiring the right talent for as and when it it, it appears, and also to to suit your 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 own business cycle, right? Because you know right. everything is everything. Well, can be cyclical. It, it it at least can fluctuate. But are you taking people on just because of it, just because of the sake of it, or are you actually being very deliberate about who you're taking on and what responsibilities they are going to be informed by. That's right. That's right. Yeah, very much. I mean, you would, you know, I, I think um, it's, it is a balance. Um, one of the things I think we did well and uh, you know, it's something that we really did focus on was trying to be opportunistic about hiring, right? When we found somebody that we believed was going to be a great talent, even if we weren't hiring for that role, we would hire them. Um, and try to get them into the company. It may not be in exactly the position that, uh, you know, we would have liked them to be in, you know, ideally from the start, but we would get them in and try to create, create a path and create their own position for them. And, and I think that helped. Um, but, you know, it is a balancing act, right? And it's a, it's a, um, it, it's a spiral, it, you know, a, a, a long time ago, I don't think you and I have ever talked about this, Alex, but a long time ago, um, I wrote a book called Hire, Fire and the Walking Dead. And the the reason for that title was the hire part of it um, was, you know, obviously you want to go out and hire top, you know, top people. And the fire part of it was, you know, it's easy when you've got a really poor performer, you know, you, you know, it might be hard to make the decision, but you know what the right decision is. It's that it's that middle band that slightly above really low performer that becomes brutal. And, and I sort of refer to them as walking dead, right? It becomes brutally difficult because if you don't have the pipeline of talent to go and, um, and, and make that decision and be proactive, uh, you end up, 
with, you know, you, you see companies that are just full of underperformance and, and that, you know, is really one of the things that, that drives it. It's a, but it is, it's a really hard balance to strike for sure. Yeah. I think people often miss that, right? It's, it can often be quite a binary yes, no decision. We keep, they go, but actually what is often overlooked. And I, I think you, you did a great, great job of mentioning there, Greg is, you know, the walking dead, or at least the slack water, these are almost the people that no one really pays too much attention to. And in terms of right. the value add that they're bringing, is it greater than or less than, say, a new hire who would who would have at least been a better fit for that role? Totally. What what it does, Alex, is it creates a bloated company, right? Because the way you solve for that, the way I mean, if you're not making those hard decisions, the way that inevitably a company ends up solving for that is to hire more people, right? And then what you end up with is a bloated company. And because you've got three people or two people doing the job that one strong person could do, right? But these things are never easy. I mean, you know, you, you show me a leader that, that doesn't see the gray in between the black and white when it comes to making decisions like this. And that is not a leader I ever want to work with. And that's not a person I ever want to hang out with, right? Because somebody who's cavalier about firing people, somebody who's cavalier about, about getting rid of people, that, that, that's that's not a good quality, right? And I understand that's different right. than decisiveness. You know, decisiveness is understanding you've got to make hard decisions and making them. But if you're cavalier about it and, and everything is just so binary, uh, that's, you know, I'm sure there's probably a place in this world for him, but it's not, it's not with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, going from a balance of hiring to a balance of, you know, leadership characteristics, being totally objective and, you know, n not having that that personality and that that level of just judgment aside from that binary statement that I, that I said earlier, Greg. It's it's so so yeah. important that that level of of just play that, that that you have whilst you're leading is is absolutely critical. So yeah, really really absolutely. with you on that on on that point. I guess tacking from building the business to you know well over a hundred million to now making the switch to the investing side, it's clear that your value add to founders extends far beyond the capital you put forward. I mean, your co-founding partner, Ira, and yourself are human resource technology veterans. So how do you leverage this deep industry expertise to benefit the founder? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Evergreen Mountain is a, is a highly specialized fund. So we, you know, we're, we're creating the fund. Um, we actually are, are doing our first close uh, at the end of next week and, uh, and have our first uh, two investments getting made. So, you know, we're really super excited about that. And, um, but, you know, it's a, it's a specialized fund that we're building where we only actually invest in future of work technology. So we only invest in companies that are focused on problems relating to the future of work. And we can think about this really broadly, right? So if you look at what's happening in the global workforce today, there's no more area of society, you know, short of like warfare related things, right? There's no more area of, of economically driven, uh, the economics of society more than the, than the way that we work today, right? You look at what's happening with automation and, you know, you look and World Economic Forum talks about over the next, over the next five years, just within the next five years, 50% of jobs are going to be automated out of existence. I mean, this is not a long time period, right? You'd expect a number like that would say, well, over the next 50 years, no, five. 
And it's happening all around us every day. You know, so when you look at what's happening with automation, what's happening with, um, you know, remote work is obviously one that we're all affected by every day. Well, you know, it's it's not going to be 100 percent remote. Not every company is going to be 100 percent remote, but I can tell you very few companies are going to be 100 percent in office. Right. And that has profound impact on the way that people work and, you know, gives people flexibility and freedom like they've never uh, you know, in, 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 in many roles, like they've never really experienced before. And there's a whole infrastructure to be set up around that. The movement to freelance in the United States alone, over the next three years, we're going to move to a to an economy, to a workforce where the majority of the workforce is freelance. We've never seen anything like that before. And, you know, the change that occurs there is absolutely profound. Just think about something, you know, that affects everybody. How do you get a, you know, not everybody, many people, how do you get a mortgage, right? If you're in the United States, the first question that any mortgage lender asks you is for your W-2, right? For your tax forms to, because the assumption is, well, you obviously have a job, right? Well, I don't have a job, but I have an income. And, you know, that shift to remote work or, you know, how, you know, in the United States, again, and, and this is very U.S. centric, but, you know, how you get medical insurance, how do you get like all of these things that are affected by this shift to the freelance, to the freelance workforce. How do you, how do you get freelancers? How do you manage freelancers in your company and the globalization of the workforce, right? Uh, the fact that now, you know, no matter where you are in the world, you're a legitimate competitor for talent to somebody on another continent, right? And, you know, that's a, that's a real shift in the way that companies have to think about how they're, how they're hiring. So when you look at that overall sort of macro landscape, um, that we're facing, that's where we invest. And when we go in and invest, what we're really trying to do is bring my expertise, my partner's expertise, and that of our venture partners as well, who are kind of similar to ourselves that have you know deep experience in this space, go into a company, surround them with the resources and the knowledge that they need, because what we bring to the table is access to the right talent, access to you know the right partners, access to customers in many places, you know, in many cases. Um, access to the best thought leaders and the best analysts and investment bankers and things like that to really try to try to help a company um, accelerate the pace that uh, that they can get the that they can get the scale. So that that's what we bring. But the reason we only do it in future of work is because that's all we know. Right. I mean, if I tried to do this in like marketing technology, I, I couldn't really help you more than just money and maybe some general expertise, um, you know, in, in building a SaaS business or something like that. So. So that's that's really how how we're thinking about it, and that's what we bring. Yeah, you mentioned you know we've got the mortgage lender now asking you for your W two. Yet with the tidal wave that is the the gig economy, everyone is working on their own terms. So what policy development really needs to happen to actually facilitate this and just go? Yes, look, you can work for your own. You won't be penalised. And how can we actually make this happen? Yeah. You know, I think it's a combination of things, Alex. I think it's, you know, there's there's governmental intervention that needs to take place. Right. Where, um, you know, I think I think, uh, you know, there are regulatory things that can take place. One of the reasons that, again, this is you this is very much a U.S. thing, but I, I, I do think this extends out to the EU as well from you know my time living there. But um, the you know, one of the one of the issues um in the U.S. is the regular, like the compliance related issues for the bank, that the hurdles that a bank has to step through because Congress, quote, unquote, you know, the U.S. Congress, quote, unquote, helped to <laughs> help to to make things, um, you know, make things better in the mortgage industry. Um, 
you know, has virtually eliminated the, the possibility that a bank can underwrite anybody who doesn't have a W-2. So, you know, there's there's legislative things that need to get changed um, to re- to make it a more acceptable form of a career. You know, from a company standpoint, you know, uh, companies need to, de- to start to remove that dividing line between, well, you're one of us or you're not really one of us, but you're doing work here, right? And that line is so artificial, but the way that companies go about managing talent makes it very real, right? That if you're a freelancer, you're a contractor in the company, you may be contributing at a much higher level than anybody internally, but you're not, but you're treated as the other. And, you know, that's something that I think companies really need to address from their own management of freelancers and contractors, because the bottom line is, you know, probably in the next three, four years, probably more than half the people floating around that office, whether, you know, the physical office or the virtual office uh, are not going to be one of us, they're going to be the other. And, you know, that's, that's what, you know, companies have to really think about how they're going to, how they're going to manage that. So I think it's regulatory. I think it's, I think it's societal. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's companies doing this. You look at the way that also, you know, I think about my kids, right. And they're 20 and 19 and they're both in college today. The way that even they think about a career is so much different than even I did. Right. Where, you know, it's, it's perfectly okay for them to be able to come out of college, start a business, give it a try, go, you know, maybe go take a job for another year, you know, a couple of years. If it didn't work out, maybe lick their wounds and get some cash back in their pocket again and, and go do it again and kind of cycle in and cycle out. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's also an education component to this. Like we don't have even even my kids college, which is a wonderful college, Montana State University um, up in Bozeman, Montana, which is like one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, you know, they're not. They're, they're not teaching kids this quite yet, right? You know, where you can go on and and take the six-week cohort class, right, from, you know, from a thought leader on Twitter to learn basic finance and, you know, take another one on SEO and take another one on, on marketing or how to sell and go out and give it a shot for a year and see what happens. And, you know, but that's, that, that's kind of a, a line of thinking that's a little bit new, I think, for, uh, you know, for the education system and hasn't quite caught up yet. Yeah, totally great points there, um, especially with regards, you know, everyone now wanting to to work on their own. Now, I'm aware McKinsey put up a report in February this year highlighting how the pandemic has just accelerated these existing trends in remote work. So how do you see the future of work unfolding inside the more traditional workplace for those who are, you know, comfortable in their role? And to what extent will people be stuck on Zooms over a water fountain chit chat? You know, I mean, that's the McKinsey report is exactly right. Right. And that's certainly anecdotally. I can tell you that's exactly my experience as well. You know, the, the companies were moving in this direction. Right. We're giving sort of the 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 freelance movement has been happening for a long time. Right. And you look at companies like, um, uh, you know, like WeWork, I think, was was a little bit of a part of this. And Upwork was is another like big freelance site that, you know, has really been kind of forefront of this. You start, you start to look at this, right? And this stuff was happening. I mean, this stuff has been happening for probably the last decade and then really accelerating over the last, you know, probably five years. Then, then the pandemic basically took what was probably a decade-long cycle and condensed it into like two months. And, you know, but, but the fundamental thesis doesn't change, right? That the need for somebody to physically, if you are, my office was in Dallas, right? I live in Colorado, but, but Harbor was based in Dallas. And, you know, 
a long, I mean, we gave up that fight a long time ago where we said, hey, everybody's got to be in Dallas and we're going to hire the best people in Dallas to come into our office every day. Why? Right. Why can't we hire the best people in the world to do this work and maybe come to Dallas once a quarter or once a year in some cases? Right. And I think that's what you're going to see more and more is it truly will will be this hybrid environment. And I think that's happening today where you know, maybe I'm going to the office for a few days a quarter and then I'm I'm working wherever I want to work for the rest, you know, for the rest of the time or or in certain cases, maybe even a maybe even, you know, for companies that are a little less comfortable with that level of freedom. You know, it's maybe I'm going to the office one day a week um, and I'm working on my own, you know, for or something like that. So that truly hybrid kind of setup is is really going to uh, is really going to be. And I think one of the things that's happening, too, is that just housing prices are driving this. Right. I mean, if you if you're trying to compete for people in the Bay Area, you are crazy if you are limiting to the Bay Area. Right. Because the, I mean, it is it, it is so outrageously expensive that if you're living there, why would you not hire the person who lives in Montana to work? And you see companies in the Bay Area doing this all the time, you know, to to work as an engineer for you, why are you going to force somebody to, to move to the Bay Area and spend, you know, three, four million dollars on a house when you can, you know, spend three, four hundred thousand dollars on a house in Livingston, Montana, where we have a house, right? And, uh, you know, it's an incredible quality of life. And, uh, you know, and, and you actually put some money in your pocket. So I think that kind of remote, uh, that truly hybrid setup is going to be a, is going to be a big thing. It's going to be essential because you're going to have to compete for talent all over the world. Yeah, you've been observing these movements inside of labor for a long time now, Greg, right? So people are prioritizing their personal freedom over anything else. So how is Evergreen going to capitalize on these trends that are driving the future of work? Well, this is what we're <clears throat> this is what we're investing in, right? So I mean, we are we are investing in those companies that are that are solving those problems, right? And I'll give you a great example of this. One of our, you know, one of our uh, investments that we'll be closing over the next um, over the next couple of weeks um, is a company and I, it is a company that basically focuses on upskilling and reskilling of talent. And um, what they're doing is they work with large companies, very large, a uh, lot of big retailers with big distribution centers and things like that, where you're seeing huge levels of automation taking place, where those retailers can can subscribe to this platform and then deposit money into an account on this SaaS platform so that those individuals that are being affected that are being displaced by automation can go in and learn things like how to write a resume how to do an interview uh taking classes on you know Coursera or LinkedIn learning or you know some cohort training classes and things like that to upgrade their skills to either make them more competitive inside the company so that they can be moved around out of those roles are getting displaced and into other roles or make them more competitive outside the company. So that that's that's that's, I think, a really like a real world example of how, you know, the companies that we're investing in are really focused on solving these these problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think automation is one of the most dominant trends that is, you know, it, it's completely displacing talent right so it's so important that we that we match this this input with the solution that is upskilling and reskilling of talent so i'm really really excited to hear more about that one greg i think when it does come to startups the future of work is broadly understood as look these are tools that make work life more simple and enjoyable so i'd love to hear a little bit more about 
your process in finding, locating, and in turn funding the most promising future of work companies? <clears throat> yeah, we're, you know, <clears throat> because we are, a, you know, a specialized fund, we do, um, we, we've done zero marketing for the firm. Honestly, our entire focus so far has been on um, raising our first fund. And uh, and we're still raising that fund, but just, you know, shameless plug in case anybody's uh, interested in, in a venture capital allocation, certainly happy to, to chat about it. But um, <clears throat> we are, uh, you know, but companies, because we are connected within that space, we're, we're having a lot of companies find us, uh, you know, which it, it, venture capital is not right for every company. And it's not right for every single company that we talk to, even though they may squarely be focused on that problem and have an incredible solution to that problem. It may not be a, it, you know, not every company is is the right uh, is the right venture capital investment, but um, but we you know we certainly would love to talk to those companies and and understand what they're doing more and if we can provide some value to them uh, you know or some help we're we're more than happy to do it but you know what we really look for are companies that are <clears throat> that are solving those problems that I you know that I talked about. Um, that have you know the ability to to really scale the company and uh you know and i mean in a, in a really meaningful way um that can have a, a you know a really a global impact with their solution and not every company is going to have that even though they may be an incredible company but um but that that's really what we look for is you know that ability to have a global impact and and get to scale quickly um and, uh, you know, that's that's obviously focused on those problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, finding companies that are going to grow quickly. But like you said there, Greg, in a meaningful way, not just, you know, chasing the next um, the next hot, hot round, as opposed to actually really unlocking a lot of economic opportunity. So I think that's that's right. Important. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And this, this is such an emerging field, right? This is this is all so new to everybody that, you know, we're we're not out there trying to chase the next unicorn on some random, you know, on some random thing, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're dialed in on that, on that future of work thesis. But, um, but, you know, you look at, you look at the, the change that some of the companies that, uh, that are out there are going to make and, and are really going to define what the workforce looks like, whether that's upskilling and reskilling or whether that's the way we find talent or the way that we manage talent or the way that we, find freelancers. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that we're looking for that can make a meaningful change on a global level. Now, taking a step back, and this is perhaps what the part of the podcast that I've been really, really looking forward to a lot is, Greg, I know you're an avid skier, cyclist, triathlete who's completed multiple Ironman triathlons, yet you've also founded and grown companies well worth over nine figures to now, to now actually raising the inaugural fund. So, what principles and I guess parallels do you draw from these two pursuits that keep you pushing forward? <laughs> yeah, um, the whole Iron Man thing is an interesting one, right? Because uh, I swore, I think my wife was actually the one who made me swear a long time ago that I can, I'm never allowed to use another Iron Man analogy in anything <laughs> I talk about. So, so I'll, I'll do it, but, uh, but you're going to have to deal with her on it, Alex. Um, the um, I'll just tell you, you forced me into it. Uh, you know, Iron Man's a funny thing, right? Because it, you know, it, there there are so many parallels there to, um, to to the startup world, right? That I think that was the thing. It's it's the 
what what happens with an Ironman? If you're not familiar with Ironman, it's a two and a half, two point four mile swim, um, 112 mile bike ride, and you then you run a marathon. Um, it, it's a it's a really 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 crappy day. Let, let me just explain. Like it's like it is it is just an absolutely out of control uh, single day, and uh, and I'm not fast when I, um, but you know there's so much involved in it. But I think that the, the biggest parallel to me, it, it, the part that actually I love about triathlon and, and Ironman is the process to get there, right? That, you know, I have trained with a number of guys, a few guys for um, a number of years now. And, you know, with the thing that we've always talked about is like, you know, the race day, that's, that's like your celebration day, right? That's the day where you go out, you have fun, people are cheering you on, you're doing your thing. And, you know, if you're me, by the end of it, you're drinking a bunch of beer at the end and telling funny stories. And that that's truly the celebration. That's the graduation. It's the process to get there. It's every single day having a plan, waking up and chipping away at that plan where most days, you know, you're going out and you're running maybe five miles and you're doing a quarter mile swim or something like that. Right. And it doesn't feel like you're building up to this monumental event. It really doesn't. And most days it just feels like a grind. It just feels um, hard. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to be doing those things. And, you know, you want to be doing what normal people do. And that's the life of a founder, right? Like, you know, every day it's, it's not about, you know, <clears throat> it's not about the day you sell it or you go public or, you, you know, whatever that exit point is. The journey is every single day just being consistent, right? Just getting up and putting in the work. And if you do that long enough, then it, it does culminate in this ridiculous thing. And, it, you know, in the case of triathlon and this Ironman, which is nuts by any reasonable standard, but in a startup, it's exactly the same way. It, it does get there, but it, but it sits on the back of day after day after day after day after day of chipping away when a lot of those days you don't want to be doing it. So I think, you know, that's, that's what I love, right? I, I love kind of having the plan and I love just getting up and just plugging in. And today, you know, I'm, I'm, today I do that on Twitter. I mean, that, that's kind of my, my, my thing professionally today is just getting up every day and writing. I get up every single day at four o'clock in the morning and I write and it's cathartic for me in the same way that Ironman, you know, just getting on the treadmill or just going outside and running for five miles you know, it didn't feel like training. It just felt cathartic. It just felt like what you need to do to clear your mind. Um, and I think that's the, that's the biggest parallel to it. Yeah. I mean, the process to get there is the game, right? The training is the game showing up and making those 1% incremental improvements. I think at least for me, endurance sport is something I also have a, a big passion for as well as writing Greg. So I guess when it gets hard in the water or on the bike or on the road, what's been the number one lesson that you've pulled across to the world of business? It's just get up the next day. <clears throat> you know, I think I, I wish there were some magic to it, Alex. I really do. But you know, I, whether it's training for a race like Ironman or it's the 13 years, you know, of grinding it out and building, uh, and building my last company, you know, I have one of my closest friends in the world, um, and, uh, and who was a board member with me for, he was one of my first investors and a board member for board member with me for a long time. His name is, his name is Martin Babinick. And, uh, and he's just a brilliant, um, human. And, 
he, uh, you know, he told me really early on, he's like, you know, there's just, there's going to be dark days and, but you've got to just, just get up the next day. That's all you have to do, right? Just get through that day, get up the next day and just start plugging away again. And, and I, 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 that, that is the key. You know, I, I really believe it's, it's nothing more than that. Just, just don't quit. You know, doesn't mean you can't change. Doesn't mean you have to keep doubling down on a bad idea, but don't quit on yourself. Right. Because being a founder, that's a mindset. That's a life, right? That's a career. And, you know, you can have multiple businesses during that career and, you know, some of them are going to work great. I've had failures along the way as well, but, but viewing that as your career, this is what I do. It's just about getting up the next day and, and plugging in. And, you know, if you're training for an Ironman, it would be getting on the bike. But if you're, you know, if you're a founder, it's just, it's just starting again the next day because Martin was right. There's, there's going to be dark days and you just have to get through them. I think what's clear is there's such a distinct overlap between these spheres of one intense endurance and two business, both of which, you know, look, get up, keep moving keep the ball rolling right because as soon as you stand still stop pause ponder on the what ifs then you're you're already moving backwards right that's right that's exactly right and you know when i was i'll never forget this i mean during a i was on a long training day one time and um for an ironman race i was doing then it was five, probably six seven years ago now and you know i was I was out in Lake Placid, New York, and racing the Ironman Lake Placid, but it was a training day a few weeks before the race. And I was just dying out there. I mean, I was like, this is just not a good day, right? And, you know, and I'm sitting, and this became like this thing in Ironman that other athletes would do, right? I I sat down on the guardrail because I was on the road, and, you know, I sat down, and this guy I didn't know, you know, came and sat down next to me, and he's like, look, all you need to do right now is stand up. That's all you need to do. And I'm going to walk with you, you know, and that was it. I mean, that's sometimes just what it takes. It's just having that person around you to whether you know them or not. Right. But I, I think that I think it's a I think it really is a perfect analogy in a lot of ways. Although, like I said, I'm not allowed to talk about them anymore because it drives my wife nuts. <laughs> oh, man. That, no, that is that is true. And uh, apologies to your wife there. But uh, so enjoyed hearing <laughs> that one, Greg. <laughs> that was that was that was a lot of fun. I think you do absolutely have to be patient and willing to accept that no matter you know how prepared you are at that starting line, you can't predict what will happen along the way. All you can do is focus on your preparation, your systems before you leap headfirst into the race, the game, and then you then you actually figure it all out. That's right. That's right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, I think going from this to a little bit more on the on the micro level, Greg, as we. Um, look to the latter stages of the pod. What does your perfect day look like? <laughs> it's changed a lot. You know, um, it, I, I think, you know, it is definitely, definitely changed. Um, I think just in the past year, uh, it's changed a lot, you know, where I, I think if you had asked me that question, probably uh, a year or two ago, I, I probably, it, it would have related to, the business and it would have related to, you know, my, my role as the CEO. And, um, you know, I probably would have said something about, you know, I get up, you know, I'm going to get up really early and I go and, 
you know, and, and we just hammer all day or, you know, so, something along those lines. But, but today it's, it's a lot different than that. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I, you know, I'm blessed to live up in the mountains in Colorado. It's an absolutely gorgeous part of the world. And, um, you know, my perfect day today is I still get up super early. Um, and, uh, and I still write, you know, for, I don't know, an hour, two hours, however, you know, however I'm feeling it that day. And then I'll go for a long hike. And, you know, that's to me where I, you know, do most of my thinking is, you know, when I'm, when I'm on, you know, I'm on a trail somewhere or something. So I may go hike for an hour and a half or two hours. And the good part about getting up at four in the morning is you can do all that. It's still like, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. Right? So, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of finishing a lot before, uh, before most people are even getting up. Um, you know, in that, that I, I have become a, a big proponent of shortening my work days um, to make them much more productive uh, and that it's not about so much the time that I'm clocking in, in a, in an office, but it really is about the quality of, of the interactions that I'm having. So, you know, my, uh, my perfect day. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I, I'm really, really with you there, especially on, you know, getting up, getting up early and actually just getting outside, right. Having some, having some sunlight on the eyes and, you know, kicking your circadian rhythm, into gear and um at least spending spending some time alone with yourself and 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 your thoughts when you're not actively working on something i think that's often when some of our greatest ideas come to us greg absolutely absolutely no no doubt i mean i I do i'm sure i'm not alone in this but once i start my day once i'm in meetings or i'm you know talking you know talking to other people or whatever i'm doing my my level of creativity goes down dramatically at that point, right? And and my level of thoughtfulness really, you know, uh, goes down at that point. And um, you know, it's that alone time and and the uh, and the quiet of you know just being outside, whether it's freezing cold out or it's it's beautiful out, has just become something that uh, you know I I think in the past year as I've kind of tried to slow the pace down a little bit, I think um, it, it's something that you know if I if I don't have it every day there's something dramatic missing from my day yeah i'm totally with you there <clears throat> we 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 often get inspired at these inopportune moments right but i think that a lot of people there are very few times when they actually slow down so giving yourself i guess you could call it breathing room the more creative you'll be a- absolutely you know it's like it's it's the old joke right where people say oh you know i got this this idea came to me in the shower well, of course it came to you in the shower, right? I mean, what are you doing in the shower besides standing there <laughs> doing nothing, right? I mean, like, of course that's when it happened, right? It's not a, it's not an accident that that's when it occurred. It's that one time of a day where most people are like alone, right? Well, I assume they're alone, but you know, they, they're you know a, 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 alone with their thoughts, right? There's not a whole lot that you could be doing except you know washing your hair and and thinking, right? And it, you know, it, but. But unfortunately for most people, it's, it's confined, it's confined down to that, you know, however long your, your normal shower is. Right. And, you know, if you can, if you can take that same kind of concentrated thinking, but you can elongate that into a, you know, a period of time when you can get outside and be alone, it's like be it's like taking a long shower at that point. Right. It's, it's the same, it's the same mindset. I love that. I'll actually have to clip that because that is a really really tremendous take from this pod you know you, taking taking some more time to go within yourself 
get creative and really get inspired. That's that's really terrific. I think now, 24 hours before this podcast, I, I asked Twitter for questions they'd like to ask. So I've handpicked the best ones, Greg. So firstly, Daniel Bezer asks, when does market stupidity peak? <laughs> I saw this question yesterday on Twitter. This was that was hilarious that the guy made a joke about the, the it's the peak market stupidity theory. Um, yeah, you know, uh, well, let me let me first say that if I understood the way that markets worked, and again, if we're talking about sort of you know public markets or economic cycles or something, I uh, you know I would be uh, I'd be well actually what I'd be doing is probably in a bidding war with Elon Musk right now for Twitter. Um, but um, but since I'm not, uh, you know, valuations in the startup world are just absolutely out of control in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think we're you start to, we're already starting to see a little bit of compression there. I think there'll be more compression to come. Um, you know, the the absurd valuations that you that you see sometimes it's, it's even more profound a lot of times in the private markets than it is in the public markets, you know, where you're seeing pre-revenue companies, pre-revenue companies getting valued at, you know, 70, 80, a hundred million dollars. It's, it's lunacy. The problem is those companies, the, the amount of time it will take to grow into those valuations is way longer than most. I mean, outside of a very, very, very few of them, it's way longer than most investors are going to be patient. Um, you know, it's not always the best thing for a company to go out and try to get, um, you know, an off the charts uh, valuation because it really only provides one path out. Right. And that's you have to be a unicorn or nobody's making money. And uh, and, and that's not the path for most founders. Right. Mo- most companies can be tremendously successful and not not be that. Um, you know, I think the other part about the the the, the, the you know, the peak market stupidity, right, is the way that we're looking at company value, right, as, you know, what an investor will pay as opposed to what the market, you know, what revenue um, is being driven, right? And I think that, you know, that's another area that, um, you know, where there's such this, there's this veneer that surrounds venture capital or private equity on those companies, you know, show me the bootstrapped founder, right, that went out and built a $5 million company and, did it with their own cap because they started with a thousand bucks and they went out and they just built this thing over 10 years and they're going to go out and they're going to turn that they're going to sell that thing for 25, $30 million. I will show me that founder all day. Then versus the person that goes out, what was the one I think fast recently, right? It was like, they raised like, you know, $300 million and they had like, you know, $500,000. I think I got these numbers wrong, but I mean, it was something like this. Like it was like $500,000 in revenue or something. That's a joke. Right. That's a joke. I mean, so I think this stuff is starting to rationalize. And, you know, we just, we haven't had that cycle before. But fortunately, I think I'm old enough where I've lived through a few of those things. And uh, and when it corrects, it's um, it, the, the shakeout is healthy, but painful. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think, well, especially with um, with regards to fast, you, you mentioned that. I think they burned through, I believe it was one hundred and sixty five million dollars of VC funding for it to turn collapse i think i know the story is a little more complex than that um yeah there's, there's, there's been a few hot takes on twitter that i've enjoyed sinking my teeth into greg but yeah it's it's interesting to see it from from different lights nonetheless i guess going on to the next question uh from startup founder of the day they want to know 
how your experience as a founder influences your investment philosophy. Yeah. Well, okay. So real quick, a plug for startup founder of the day. Um, that's a incredible Twitter account um, where they feature every day. They feature a different startup uh, or at least a few days a week. They feature a different startup um, to tell their story. And these are, these are, you know, these are not the big publicized stories, but um, so if you're not following <clears throat> that, uh, that, that account, definitely, uh, definitely do it. It's a great one. Um, yeah. I mean, how my, you know, how, I think I'm I'm a little bit different, and and I know my partner Ira is too. We're a little bit different kind of investors because we are we're truly not <clears throat> the type of of investors that are out trying to find the next unicorn. We we don't have a fund that has to do that, right? Well, we're trying to find our companies that we can build the scale that can grow profitably, and um, <clears throat> you know they don't have to be profitable at every single point in the company, but we want a real clear path to that profitability. And we want to grow them on a, on a solid foundation. We're not just trying to stack one thing on top of another, on top of another, and f- go flip it to somebody. And I think there's just a lot of that that's happening today um, <clears throat> in the market, right? Where if we put enough capital into this, we're going we're gonna to make it look like there's something happening and somebody's going to come along and buy it. That's not what we're trying to do. Uh, we're, we're really trying to help founders build companies that are truly built to last, right? And uh, if you know the book by Jim Collins and... Um, and build something that they can be proud of, that we can be proud of, um, you know, for uh, <clears throat> for for a long time. It doesn't mean our capital is going to be tied up in those companies. We're we're early stage investors, and our job is to go in at an early stage, help that company get, you know, to an early stage of scale, and then bring in investors who are much larger than us that share that common vision for what this company can go accomplish. And we just then our goal is to get out of the way. Um, and help them go do that. And we'll continue to invest and we'll continue to, to ride along. But, uh, but we want to prepare them for that big, for that big round. And I think, you know, in terms of my own experience, how that influences, well, that that's very much the path that we followed. Right. I mean, I, I was extraordinarily blessed at a, at a, at an early stage in the company to have investors and board members who felt that same way, right. That, that, you know, they helped me build something that, you know, we, we really could look back on and say this was an extraordinary business. This was not a this was not a three or four year project that we were going to try to turn. And I was going to walk away from it. I mean, this was something this is a lifelong passion. And that's what we want to look for in founders. And I think I think the other big thing there um, is we look for founder. We talk my, my partner, Ira, and I talk all the time about. We look for find a way founders, right? We're not looking for the necessarily, I don't care about the Ivy League education. I mean, if somebody has it, great. If they don't, I don't care. I went to the State University of New York at Plattsburgh um, and uh, and proudly so, right? But nobody probably that's listening to this has any idea what that university even is. And uh, But it's a great school. And, you know, I, what we're looking for is founders with grit and determination and passion. And the reason is because that's, that's what we had, right? We were on a mission to go solve a, a huge problem and still continue to be focused on that same problem in a very different way. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's what we look for, right? We're not we're not looking, you know, just for the Ivy League educated, you know, person that's going to go out and try to <clears throat> turn a unicorn in three years. That's just not that's not our style. Yeah, well, I think that's a totally, totally sound um sound judgment at least to operate on i love the idea of you know grit determination passion um, everything 
you had you and your you and your partner had in in, in building those businesses to now pivoting to the investing world so yeah totally with you there greg i know you're operating a specialized fund but Inland Shrimp Company asks, would you ever consider investing in a startup outside of your investment <laughs> protocol, <laughs> even when you think it's cool? <laughs> I, I responded to that on Twitter last night, and, uh, and, and I know there's guys at uh, Inland Shrimp, and it's really funny. I think I, I jokingly referred to them as, no, I got to stay focused on my on my uh, on work tech, unless it's, of course, seafood, which, uh, you know, I mean, just everybody has to be investing in tech. Um, you know, we, it's, it's really funny. We've, we've got to be, um, you know, what part of, uh, of, of running a specialized fund is, you know, sticking to our thesis is the, one of the mo outside of getting a return is one of the most important things that we can do with our LPs and our LPs are trusting us with their capital to invest in the way that we say we're going to invest. So we have to be extraordinarily, um, focused on it. And, you know, even when I'm doing private angel investing myself, uh, which I will do, you know, from time to time, um, I really try to invest in those things I understand. And, um, you know, and, and where I really believe that I can add value. And, uh, and fortunately, or unfortunately, <laughs> this scope of where I can add value is pretty narrow. It's, it's broadly SaaS and specifically, um, work-related technology. So when I venture out of it, uh, you know, I'll do some SaaS, you know, investing that might be out of, uh, out of, you know, work and future of work-related technology, but, uh, but that's rare. Um, you know, I, I really try to, if I'm going to put money behind it, I want to at least, I, at least at a minimum, I want to understand what's going on. So, uh, so yeah, I do go out of it a little bit, but, uh, but it still stays pretty narrow to SaaS. Sure. I think to wrap things up now, Final question is from Barrett O'Neill, the obviously the, the co-founder of On Demand Storage, um, who both of us know well through Twitter. He asks, if you were starting over from day one, what two things would you do differently? Oh man, leave it to Barrett to ask like the really hard question. Um, <clears throat> the uh, what two things would I do differently if I were starting over today? Uh, I would have number one, I would have bootstrapped longer. Um, you know, I think uh, there was some fear involved in that. And, you know, when I started the business, um, my kids were young and, you know, we had just bought a new house. Um, I had some money, but not a ton. And, you know, I think um, I, I think I I rushed to raise money as basically a risk mitigant when I probably didn't need to do that quite so early. I probably would have tried to go longer, um, you know, bootstrapping, because I think the longer you can go toward product market fit, the, the, the return that, it, you know, the equity value that that means for a founder and for a founding team, not just the founder, um, is exponential, right? That, you know, if you can just hang in there a little bit longer and bootstrap this and get to, get to basic product market fit with a handful of paying customers that are willing to pay you something to show that you've, you're actually solving a problem for them that's meaningful and they're willing to pay for. Um, I, I, I would have done that. Um, I think that's, that's definitely one uh, thing I would have done differently. Um, I, I think, you know, the other thing I probably would have done differently is 
and, and I referenced this earlier, not focused on growth at all costs. I was extraordinarily focused on just getting customers in the door. Um, I didn't care if the deal was good, bad, or indifferent. I was, you know, I, Barrett has done some, uh, by the way, some great writing on Twitter around customer acquisition cost and, and uh, growing cust- your customers profitably and understanding which customers are profitable and which aren't. And if you're not following Barrett, definitely do that. Um, and, uh, you know, because he's got some great writing there. And I think that that's advice. Honestly, I wish I had Barrett's advice before I started, right? Which was, you know, focus really more on profitable growth, focused on profitable customers early on. Um, and, and I didn't. I, I really focused more on growth at all costs and just trying to stack um, customers as fast as I possibly could. And, and I think what that did is it caused us to accelerate a burn rate, which then, you know, went back to point number one, which was caused us to raise more money at an earlier stage. So, you know, it all kind of connects together. Yeah. Excellent response, Greg. I think those those two learnings there are absolutely critical for, for any founder operating in a multitude of fields. So really enjoyed that one. Greg, listen, it has been an immense pleasure having you on the show, my friend. And I'm really, really thrilled we got around to doing it. Likewise, I really appreciate it, Alex. And, uh, you know, love um, <clears throat> love what you're doing with the podcast and, you know, continuing to, continue to you know, keep listening. And, uh, and you know, and I think it's I think it's doing a great job with it and, uh, you know, excited for you. So I'm thrilled to thrilled to be here. Really honored that you had me on.